0: It is the first Sunday in July, and what that means is we are starting a brand new series. You saw it there. Mr. Harry introduced it, but authority matters. Authority matters, and it matters. And so I want to read from Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 5, is our main text today. The writer of Hebrews, beginning in Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, because God said, we say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verse 7. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want to teach a message today titled, Seed Sower Authority. Seed Sower Authority. And before I do, I'd like to pray. Father, I thank you there's a name above every name. It's the name of Jesus. And Lord, I ask that all that that name represents, that Holy Spirit you would apply the benefits of that name to hearts and to minds to situations people today that your kingdom would come and your will would be done that the anointing of god would make evident and tangible the reality that jesus is lord and his kingdom's at hand i yield to you holy spirit have your way make much of jesus it's in his name i pray amen in our book, Building with Balance, chapter 11 is titled Godly Leadership is to Protect. You know, God has given leadership to, in relationship with Him, to express His godliness or His intent for leadership. The issue we face today, and it's an issue that has continually been faced throughout history. Is that there's obstacles to godly leadership. There's many, and we talk about it in that chapter, but oftentimes, obstacles is because we've not had godly leaders go before us. So you have wrong models. You have people that have been hurt by leaders or leadership, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And all of this becomes an obstacle to, from, to people understanding and accepting that godly leadership, that leadership is designed and given by God to protect us and to help us in His design and plan and purpose for our life. And this brings us to the issue of our series, which is authority matters in our main text today. In Hebrews 13, 7, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it, but it says, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When we begin to introduce this series and this issue of authority, we got to understand that there are different categories of authority. Let me mention three of them. Spiritual authority legal authority, and cultural authority. Spiritual authority speaks to what is oftentimes also referred to charismatic authority. It's authority that is given by God to express the reign and the will and the kingdom of God. Then there's legal authority. Legal authority pertains to constitution and laws, policies, government. And within legal authority, you have something called organizational authority. Who has the authority to sign checks or make agreements for an organization to open up an account, etc. Then you have cultural authority. Another way to think of cultural authority is family authority. It means the culture you have grown up in, there's a cultural authority, meaning there's a sense of respect, an authority or a a people looking to you for influence or for leadership in a cultural way. Cultural authority uh, is like people looking to the elders, looking to those who are the oldest in the family, who have lived longer, who have experienced more things. There's a certain type of authority that comes culturally. You can think about the culture... Uh, in different regions of our country, that there are certain people that carry a sense of cultural authority because they've been a voice or they've been an influence in that area of our nation for decades upon decades. So they carry what's called cultural authority. Now, when you think about legal authority and cultural authority, you've got to understand that both originally were established by God for God and for His purpose. The danger is when legal authority or governmental authority and cultural or family relational uh, authority begin to take precedence over spiritual authority. Or let me put it another way. The danger becomes when legal authority or cultural authority begins to become... No longer aligned or submitted or surrendered to spiritual authority, to the kingdom of God. Okay? And notice the writer of Hebrews appeals to followers of Jesus to remember spiritual leaders. Now, the people in the book of Hebrews, in the time of its writing, they're experiencing persecution. And notice at the end of the letter, the writer of Uh, of Hebrews, reminds followers of Jesus to remember the spiritual leaders in their life. He draws their mind back to the issue of spiritual authority. How do we know he's, or or she, whoever wrote it, uh, I let the, the cat out of the bank, but speculations, just speculations, so it don't matter, but some have tried to argue that Mary the mother of Jesus wrote Hebrews others say Paul but it's all speculation which is just speculation so it's meaningless but i said she so that i had to explain why i said that he or she but notice the writer of Hebrews highlights those that have spoken the word of god to you spiritual leaders spiritual authority now we have examples throughout history you know as the saying goes those who forget history are what inevitable to repeat History. We got plenty of examples throughout history of when legal authority begins to take precedence over spiritual authority and submission to God and His kingdom. For instance, when you have legal authority beginning to take priority and precedence over spiritual authority, you get the Roman Catholic Church. You get the abuses that happen that you can go and study about. You get the church acting. Directing wars, financing wars. You you get all of what, when you think of that, what came when Constantine, the ruler, declared Christianity, the the, uh, religion of the nation and the empire. You get a controlling and cold lording over expression of the so-called kingdom of God. But then when you think cultural authority when it's not aligned and submitted to spiritual authority in the kingdom of God, you get people that are leading by status, but not competency. Or they're leading by um, the fact that they're an elder or older, and you can think about it can lead to complacency or peacekeeping expression or compromises. Okay? Now, Jesus who is the express image of God, according to Hebrews 1, he makes a claim when it comes to matters of authority. And he makes his claim after his crucifixion, after his death, burial, and resurrection. And he makes it to his disciples in Matthew 28 and 18. And Jesus, after his resurrection, came and spoke to them, saying, All authority. Now, I had a mentor who said, All means all, and that's all that all means, when that's what it can mean. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Wasn't it great to see water baptisms take place last week? Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always until the end of the age. Jesus makes the claim that He has all authority after His resurrection. That he has all authority. He has all authority when it comes to spiritual authority. He has all authority now when it comes to legal authority. And he has all authority now when it comes to cultural authority. Meaning, Jesus has all authority, and all now, legal authority and cultural authority, is to be submitted to him, the King of the kingdom of God and his spiritual authority. He makes that claim. And he tells his followers, because they have all authority, as you go, I want you to make disciples. I want you to make other followers, not of you, but other followers of me, followers for me. And I want you to do it by baptizing them, leading them to make an outward confession that He alone is the way, the truth, and life, that He alone is Lord, that there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, can be forgiven, can get a new heart, can get a new right standing with God their Creator, can get a new relationship and a new future in God. Then he says, teach them. Meaning, find disciples who are willing to take the posture to be a learner. In fact, that's what disciple means. It means to be a learner. To be a learner means I'm willing to be taught, meaning it's a posture of a type of submission. If you're the learner, you're not the teacher. You're the learner. It affects your posture. He says, go make disciples who will baptize, who's willing to confess me outwardly, that will be taught, and then you observe for them what it looks like to follow me and live out these teachings so that they may do the same now when he says make disciples of all nations the Greek word for nations there actually is ethnic groups it means all subcultures and groups of people you got to understand that now in a in a global world and in a in a real sense a global economy there's all kinds of different uh, ethnicities or ethnic groups within one nation it's the reality of it And Jesus says, make disciples of all groups of people. But notice his emphasis. He didn't send his followers and say, I want you to go disciple the government. And he didn't say, I'm sending you and go disciple cultural traditions. No, no. Notice what Jesus and his method is. He says, first, you're to go disciple people. Because it's people who determine the culture and determine what type of government. Government doesn't exist without people. It's people who employ what we use as the term government. And it's the same when it comes to culture. Culture doesn't exist if it weren't for people who make up the culture. So Jesus' methodology is first disciple people, watch this, And then they can bring, through my spiritual authority, they can bring my kingdom and my ways upon their culture and government. That's the method. Disciple the people, mature my followers to live what a life of following me and trusting me looks like. And then they can bring through this spiritual authority that that I have that can grow within them. They can bear then that spiritual authority upon their culture of upbringing, their family heritage, the way that the world and the subculture that they uh, lived in and, and were brought up in. Had ways of thinking and practices and ways of doing life. They can bring now my kingdom upon that. They can bring my kingdom upon government and laws and the way things are done in the nations of the world. Now, I'm going to say something that, especially in the climate of today, might be hard for most of us, for many of you listening, might anger some of you. And nevertheless, it's the reality of it when you look at the reality of the Gospels. And it's this. Jesus, in His days of ministry, chose to operate solely in spiritual authority. He did not seek to accomplish God's will on the earth through the means of cultural authority or legal or governmental authority. He operated solely in spiritual authority. Now, watch this. Because the cultural authority around him and the governmental authority had have, have been so perverted and had went so far from God's original intention of why he created governmental authority and cultural authority in the first place. Watch this. The cultural authority and the governmental authority of Jesus' day killed him killed him because they had moved so far away from God's original intent. See, when we talk about perversion, often we normally just think about sexual morality. And there's an aspect of that. But perversion in Scripture is way bigger. It means to use something contrary to its original purpose and intent. And legal authority, governmental authority, and cultural authority had moved so far from God's original intent that when Jesus came and operated in the priority, the primary, most important authority, spiritual authority, those other authorities killed Him. They killed Him. Now, if you're not familiar with the context of Jesus in the days of His ministry, let me help you. Uh, by the Holy Spirit's help, paint us a little picture. Discipleship was not something new in the days of Jesus. In fact, you can find it all throughout the Old Testament. There was what's called the school of prophets. Uh, uh, Isaiah had disciples, Elijah had Elisha. There was discipleship all throughout. And when Jesus is born, there's different schools of discipleship. And the different schools of discipleship, watch this, was based around how they believed they could bring the will of God, the kingdom of God, the Messiah, upon the earth. And the way they believed, we're talking about methodology, that the kingdom would come, determined what group they were. Let me tell you about one, one was called the Essenes. The Essenes were separatists. They believed that the world was so absolutely perverted and messed up that there was no way to interact with it to bring the kingdom of God. So what God was waiting upon was a group of His followers to leave society, the city, the culture, and to go in the desert and live so separated and pure that if they could be separated and consecrated and pure enough, then the Messiah would come and the kingdom of God would come. That's the Essenes. Okay. Now, it's because of the Essenes, we have what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls that was found in Qumran. And it's because of them, we have and we know that the Scripture we have today is still the Scripture that Jesus read. That the entire book of Isaiah that's right there in your Bible is the entire word for word still what they found in Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. That God preserved His Word. But that was the Essenes. That was their thinking of how the kingdom would come, how the will of God would prevail on the earth. Then you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They believed that it was through compromising and finding a way to work with the priests, the religious leaders, and the governmental leaders that if they could find compromises and work with both and keep peace, that then the Messiah would come. That's why that one of the reasons they killed Jesus is that they said that they were disturbing this compromise that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had with the religious priests of the temple, the Jews, and the governmental leaders of Rome. Then you had the zealots. Remember, Jesus chose a zealot to be one of his disciples, Simon the Zealot. And zealots believed, listen, the only way to bring the kingdom of God was by fighting. You resist. You get out there and you take weapons and you do action and you fight. You fight physical force with physical force. The zealots. The problem is, is when Jesus, by the Father's direction, started his ministry. You ready for this? He didn't join any of those groups. He started a totally new group and movement. I like what Bill Hull says. He says, one lesson we can learn from Jesus' refusal to become a political leader is that he didn't see the power of the state as the solution to society's basic problem of sin. While politics can be a noble career, Jesus sees changing the world as an internal issue that required inner transformation. See Luke 6. Wow. Now, Jesus had all spiritual authority in the days of His ministry. He got all cultural authority and legal authority after His resurrection. I'm not going to go into the authority of the devil today and how the devil began to pervert and take control of governmental or cultural authority. But Jesus said wherever he was in the days of his ministry, there the kingdom of God was there. Meaning, the ability to experience God's will was available. He said in Luke 4, he quoted from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news from the poor. That means there's a way to get out of injustices. There's a way to get out of things that hold you back from excelling, like sickness and which family, cultural authority you were brought up in, that the gospel the way to get you above all of that. Okay. Then he said, if you're blind and you have wrong thinking and wrong understanding, the, I, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring light to those that are blind, healing to the brokenhearted, to raise the dead, to cleanse the lepers. He said the anointing, the authority of God was upon him. And yet, there were people though Jesus had all spiritual authority, who didn't receive the same manifestation or benefit of that authority that others did. Here's the point. Individuals' heart and choices and posture determined their experience and what the spiritual authority of Jesus could do for them. Now why is this? Because there's another authority I didn't mention in the beginning. You ready for it? It's called the authority of man and woman. Meaning it's called the authority of the individual, the authority of the human. When God created humans, He gave authority to individual humans. The authority to either submit and surrender to His spiritual authority and will or to resist and rebel His spiritual authority. This is why when you go read Old Testament Scriptures, you find all these, these uh, things that even Jesus brought up and challenged the Pharisees on. He said, your law says it. Why are you getting mad at me? But you find all these weird Scriptures where it calls humans little gods, little g, or it calls them gatekeepers. And you read that and you're scratching your head saying, what in the world is Scripture talking about? What it's saying is, is that God gave you the authority to be a gatekeeper. Meaning you can open up the gates of your heart, your mouth, your eyes, your ear, your life to His spiritual authority and the reign of God and the authority of God or you can resist it and when you resist it, whether we know it or not, according to James 3, we open our gates, our life up to another. Thank you. He said, first go and make disciples of people, of individuals, so that from them, their culture, their upbringing, the cultural authority can be influenced. So then governmental authority can be influenced. This is important. Jesus was asked, he said, how will the kingdom of God come? Will you be able to observe it and see, oh, there it is. And he said, no, no, it first, first, not only, but first comes without observation. Meaning, the spiritual authority of God first comes on the inside. He said, it's like a seed. If you know anything about a seed, a seed does no good until you plant it. you got to get it into the unseen. But what's on the unseen eventually begins to affect and bear upon the seen And Jesus said it's the same way with the kingdom of God. It's the same way with spiritual authority. It's the same way that God's will is going to prevail on the earth. It first comes on the inside, on the individual heart and mind of a person who opens up the gate of their life to his spiritual authority. Watch this. And then as that seed who Paul says is Christ, as Christ grows in you and in me, we can bring Christ and his kingdom and authority to bear upon our family Of upbringing cultural authority and governmental authority that is the methodology that Jesus modeled now all of this is important and here's the main point of what I said at this point it means when we talk about spiritual authority it cannot be completely understood without it being framed within a relational framework or the context of relationships It was the way, and still is today. It's the way a person relates to Jesus, the one who has all authority, that determines how His authority affects or does not affect their life. Meaning, when it comes to matters of authority, you always have to think about it in a relational context. Meaning, there can be people who have spiritual authority, but if you choose not to relate or see the spiritual authority in them, then the benefit of that spiritual authority upon them won't benefit you. Jesus, do you believe that He was anointed with the Holy Spirit? Acts 10.38? How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit in power? And yet, though he had spiritual authority to fix a person's heart or issue, there's people who didn't receive the benefit of that authority because they didn't perceive that he had the authority or they resisted it. And it's still the same today. Now, let me give you some examples of how Jesus solely operated in spiritual authority. This woman comes to Jesus while he was out in his ministry. She Jesus, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. You know what he says? what does that have to do with me? Because see, that's outside of the realm of spiritual authority. That falls into the realm of governmental authority. And he says, who made me a judge? Who made me an arbitrator over you? He says, you got judge, you got governmental authority for that. I'm operating solely in spiritual authority in this time. So he said, go to the judge for that. And then he tells... You remember? He tells the parable of the rich fool. He said the rich fool keeps getting prosper and blessing more, so they keep tearing down what they have and building bigger. And he says, that person's a fool. This night the soul will be required. And he says, be rich towards God. Be rich toward God. Then he says, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. What's he saying? He's saying the priority is the kingdom of God. Spiritual authority is the priority. And if we don't get that right, we'll never get our influence or our engagement with cultural authority, our governmental authority right. Well, never. It's got to start with right spiritual authority. Then you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him. They said, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? He says, why do you test me? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God, Mark 12. Then he goes into the temple. He starts teaching in the synagogues, and they're amazed, and they're saying, who gave you authority to teach in the synagogue? They're asking about cultural authority. Like, like what school of discipleship were you a part of? What Pharisee school were you trained in? Where did you get cultural or tribal authority to be able to teach with this authority? Then he goes in the temple and he turns over the tables, the money changers' tables. And they say, where did you get the authority to do this? What seat of government or culture do you occupy to do this? He's operating in spiritual authority. Is that their cultural authority and governmental authority was out of line with spiritual authority. But he was operating only in spiritual authority. Hebrews 13 to 7, this brings us back to our main text. It says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, this presents us a challenge when we first hear it. Rule over. Rule over. But that tension and that challenge is relieved and removed when we understand actually what the writer wrote. You got to understand that the first Bible that came in the language of the majority of us, the primary language of English, was sponsored, meaning the translator was paid by King James. Meaning the king, governmental authority, was paying someone to interpret spiritual authority, the word of God. Now, you want to imagine tension? Because if you interpret certain things a certain way and it exposes how the king and government are out of the line of spiritual authority, it can get you killed or you can lose your job. And so unfortunately, in the King James in the beginning, the first English Bible that was translated from the Latin Vulgate is that you find some scriptures when it comes to leadership translated wrongly, and this is one of them. It's not rollover. In fact, it's a Greek word. You see it there on your... A sermon card. It's used 27 times in the Gospels of the New Testament. Jesus Himself used this word to refer to leadership. But it doesn't mean over. Here's what it means. It means to lead by going before. And it means to consider and to count. Meaning biblical leadership is to lead and go before. It's not a leadership that points the way but doesn't go the way. It points to the way that you've already went. That's why the writer of Hebrews says it's a faith that can be followed. It's not just a mental faith. It's a faith that's demonstrated. It's a life of relating to Jesus that can be pointed to. But this really should read, Remember those who go before you, who watch over by considering and counting what takes place. Now, let me give you an example. Do you understand that as a pastor in this local church and congregation, there are things that I consider that you have never had to consider? That's part of counting or what biblical leadership is. It's like you come in and you don't necessarily think, like, who cleaned the building? Or is there enough space in the parking lot? It ha- is the accommodations in the bathroom? You don't have to think about that. But leaders have to go before. And part of going before is envisioning and counting and considering things that followers don't have to. It's part of it. Now, here's the very, very important point. Jesus in Scripture affirms the role of God-appointed leaders for our life. The notion that is prevailing in many circles in America today that is so anti-leadership, it is a equality on steroids. Or pick another um, biological choice. But listen, Jesus is not against leadership. He's just against a certain style and type of leadership. Jesus and His followers in the New Testament is not against leadership where everybody's equal and has an equal say. No. That's equality on steroids. That's unbiblical. And to find the roots for that, go back and read the story of Korah and see God's opinion of that kind of extreme, out of balance Reasoning, No, 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 listen. What Jesus is against, he calls Gentile lording over. It's a lording over. It's a type of leadership and ruling, watch this, that enforces the will of the leader upon the will of an individual against the individual's will and God's will. And that's where you get abuse. For instance, if someone were to go out here okay, and get angry at a person and your will is to physically harm them and you physically harm them against their will, they don't want to be assaulted, you know what that's called? That's called going to jail. And I'm not going to visit you. I'm going to send Pastor Craig. And he heard me say that in the first gathering, so he didn't come to the second gathering. So I don't know who's going to visit you. But no, listen, that's called assault. Because you're, you are inflicting your will upon the individual will of another who's not asked for that. That's called Gentile lording over. Listen to me. Not even God does that. But it's so amazing in evangelical circles in Western Christianity that we don't know that reality about God. Listen, in this age, God has a will, but He does not enforce and afflict and make His will be done if someone in their individual will and right chooses to resist it. If you believe that a homosexual lifestyle is the best lifestyle for you, listen, God lets you choose that. Even though God says that that's not the best life, that He's designed for you. If someone wants to absolutely just live maxed beyond their means, on credit and on covetousness and things like that, even though it's not God's will, then He lets people choose to use the will, the authority He gave them to do that, even though it's not His will. And so we have to remember it's the same when it comes to godly leadership that godly leadership is not inflicting your own opinions and enforcing your own opinions and your desires and and making other people do it contrary to their own will. Peter, when he talked about biblical godly leadership, he said, we're not to lord over God's flock, 1 Peter 5, but we're to oversee being examples. Jesus said there will be chief leaders among us. He just said the chief, the leaders among us, will be people who serve all, not as the Gentiles dictate all. In Acts 15, Dr. Luke said that there were chief or leading men among the brothers or among the local church, Acts 15. Now, here's the point. When it comes to godly leadership, scripture always adjoins godly leadership and the idea of godly leadership and the design of godly leadership, always joins it to the way of shepherding. Why is that important? Well, when you go in the Old Testament, you find that the Bible highlights the ways of Egypt, meaning the way the world or unbelievers thought. And it said, Egypt despised the shepherds. Here's what that means. It means the way and thinking of the world around us Despises the way of leadership of Jesus. You got to remember that. And so, for all of us, whether we're a leader by being a father or a husband or in our place of employment or any type of leadership role, you got to understand the ways of the world are constantly seeking to push you into conform to the ideas of leadership that the world in Egypt has against the way of God. That connects more with shepherding. More with shepherding. Now, as I said before, there's a resistance that is growing around us to the ideas of leaders because of equality being on steroids and the idea of equality. But let's look to Jesus as the example. In Philippians 2 and verse 6, Paul uh, appeals to all of us as followers of Jesus. He appeals to the model of Jesus. And he said, look... Who, Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he took on the form of a bondservant and became a human. What's Paul appealing to him? He's saying, well, one, did not consider. The word consider there is the same Greek word from Hebrews 13, 7. That the leaders who go before, that's what biblical leadership is. So Jesus is an example of biblical leadership. And what Paul is appealing to is Jesus' model. Now, here's the thing. Jesus and the Father were equal in nature. They were equal in nature. You can't say that God the Father is more God than God the Son. They're equal in nature. But watch this, but they're not equal in function. Here's how we know that. Once Jesus, and this is what Paul's saying, took on a body, he could only be at one place at one time. But the Father was still omniscient, omnipresent. He was all-knowing and could be everywhere. But Jesus, when He was confined to the body, could only be one place at one time. They're equal in nature, but they're not equal in function. Think about a man and a woman. Man and women are equal in their worth. The most empowering movement ever in the history of the world for women is what you're in right now, the church of Jesus Christ the true church, spirit field church, rightly dividing the Word of God church. But equality on steroids means that we're equal in function as well, and that's not true. We're equal in worth, but not equal in function. Because when you think about marriage, if you think you're equal in function, then we need a good biblical healthy sex education course for you. We're equal... In worth, but we're not equal in function. Men alone have seed. Women have receptors, womb, carriers. So we're equal in worth, but not equal in function. Brothers and sisters, let's apply it now to the body of Christ. We're equal as children of God, heirs of eternal life. But we're not equal in function and role. Paul, he talks about the body as a metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12. He says all believers, all the followers of Jesus, all the children of God are part of the body of Christ. But not every member has the same function and role. So equality doesn't mean that now we're just equal in voice or equal in role. No, no, no. we're equal as children of God, but we are all not equal and what we have to count and consider. We're not equal in function. In function, So let's talk now about this leading. Because the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, 7, he appeals and he speaks of leaders. So for leaders and godly leadership, what does leading look like? Well, notice he says, those who spoke the word of God to you. Godly leadership speaks the word of God. Rightly divided, rightly applied. And they apply and they seed and sow the seed of God's word into the soul of the kingdom of God, which is the hearts and minds of people. And they do it when it's in season and out of season. They sow God's word whether it's culturally acceptable, governmentally acceptable, but it's always spiritually acceptable for godly leaders to sow God's word. Not their opinions, but God's word rightly applied. Then he says this about biblical leadership. He says, whose faith follow. So it's not just a talking even of God's Word for biblical leaders. It's a doing and a following Jesus who is Lord. Following Him through seasons, through trials, through lessons, through steps. And they have learned to relate in trusting in Jesus practically in more areas of life. Because, listen, leaders go first. They go first in trusting Jesus in finances. They go first in trusting Jesus in their marriage. They go first in trusting Jesus to sell things and prioritize things. They go first in trusting and following Jesus. Here's what it looks like, Paul in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. He says, but what things were gained to me, these have counted loss. You know what counted is? Same Greek word. Paul demonstrated godly leadership in the fact that he was a leader, not just by what he said, but what he did because he went before other brothers and sisters and people. He went before how? By willing to sacrifice all the cultural authority he had. He was schooled in the school of Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, according to the law, had zeal. He had what we would use vernacular today, street credit culturally, and he gave it all up for the gain of Christ. That's what spiritual leadership looks like. He had faith, relational trust to Jesus, that the gain of Christ was the true gain. So he counted, he led, he went before by considering and counting the cost before others. Hebrews 10, 29, there's another leadership example. It says, those count the blood of the covenant. And it talks about the spirit of grace. Listen, leaders go first by counting the, and considering the value of the blood of Jesus. See, watch this. You know why some people can't lead? And why they can't move into godly influence and leadership? is because they're still trapped and confined to the past. Because godly leaders learn to value and put trust in the blood of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus frees us from the past so that we can go before, by the power of the Holy Spirit, other brothers and sisters in following Jesus. You know why so many brothers and sisters are stuck and you're stuck right where you're at? Because the past failures have got you trapped. But you know what godly leadership looks like? It looks like learning to value and trust the powerful, that we sing about, blood of Jesus that forgives us and cleanses us and releases us of past transgressions and failures and frees us to be empowered to go before brothers and sisters and following Jesus in His kingdom assignment. Can I hear an amen? They've learned the precious value of the Spirit of grace. They have learned to count that, that following Jesus is not based on our own merits and our own ability and our own capacity and our own education, but they've learned to count by going before, trusting in the Spirit of grace to enable them that all that we need for life and godliness has been made available to us, that we may be partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1. Here's another one. Godly leaders go before in their faith by counting it all joy when they're in various trials. That's what the Apostle James said in James 1-2. He said, my brethren, count it all joy. You know what count means? Same Greek word. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because godly leaders have learned. That various trials are the needed context for the production of the needed trait of Christ to be manifested in their life, and therefore they've shown godly leadership by being able to, in relationship to Jesus, trust Him in trials. That it's producing the trait of Christ in them and through them, and they do it joyfully. How about this one? Hebrews eleven eleven it talks of Sarah, and her godly leadership. It says, because she judged him faithful who had promised. The word judge there, same Greek word, it means to go before to lead by considering and counting. How did she show godly leadership? Because Sarah, being past the age to be able to give birth, she showed godly leadership by putting trust in the faithfulness of God that Him who said it and by the mouth is able to produce it by the hand. That that's what godly leadership looks like. It's a faith that can be followed because it's a faith that goes before other brothers and sisters to trust God for the impossible, to take up their cross and die to this world of themselves before other brothers and sisters to become the example of a faith of relating to Jesus that can be demonstrated and pointed to. And here's the point, is that godly leaders count things different. They measure things different. And so when you grow in relating to Jesus and you mature, it's our maturity in Him that produces godly leadership. Because listen, the world says that we only have peace when everything goes well. But Jesus says, even in tribulation, I've given a peace, an awareness of my lordship and kingdom. So they count even trials different. They have a different measuring stick for life. They have faith in the faithfulness of God. I love this one, Acts 26 and 2. The Apostle Paul, he's standing before governmental authority. King Agrippa, and here's what he says in Acts 26. Too. He says, I think." Myself happy, King Agrippa. Oh, I love it. You know what the word "think" is? The same Greek word. Meaning, godly leadership and influence and impact on other brothers and sisters only comes about when you first individually learn to think differently. Godly leaders think different. That's why the outcome of their life is different. Paul's there and he's about ready to lose his head. And he's standing before governmental authority. But he's got so much spiritual authority that he's surrendered to. And he's given his personal authority, surrendered to King Jesus' authority. And he says, I think myself happy. Meaning, I show personal leadership by not allowing what I'm going through to affect my trust and my joy in Jesus. Wow. 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 Leaders think differently. They measure differently. It's a faith that you can see demonstrated. It's a faith that can be appealed to to follow. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says the outcome of their conduct. What's the outcome of their conduct? Here it is. Conduct without covetousness. Go read every character sketch of of godly leaders, pastors, elders in the New Testament. Paul read, he always says free from covetousness. Why? Because listen, they've learned that the gain of Christ with godliness, is the true contentment. That it don't matter if you got all this world, if you lose the gain of intimacy in relating to Jesus, you lose the contentment. The true gain is Christ. And because, watch this, they have contentment, you know what the outcome of their faith is? They have boldness. Because, listen, in the will of God is the experience of the authority of God. And in the authority of God comes the boldness from God. That's why when they looked at Peter and John, they said, now wait a minute, you don't have cultural authority, you've not been to any of our schools, and you don't have governmental authority. And they said, why do you speak with so much boldness? And they said they had been with Jesus. Been with Jesus, Him who has all authority. The outcome of their conduct, kingdom, righteousness, peace, joy, and the Holy Spirit. Sarah, because she judged and showed godly leadership, judged him faithful, she conceived. Meaning, the outcome of godly leaders' conduct is that what fruit have they brought forth? The harvest they've reaped. Now that's how the writer of Hebrews exhorts and speaks to godly leadership. Now let's talk about how the writer of Hebrews exhorts and talks about brothers and sisters following godly leadership. The writer of Hebrews says, have to be led. If you follow their faith, that means you have to be in a posture of being willing to be led. You have to be in a posture that you're willing to be challenged, to be confronted, to be held accountable, to be stretched, to grow. It's a relational transaction. Leaders can go before, but if a person doesn't want to follow, then there's no relational transaction. Just like Jesus had things that the Father gave him that could help an individual, like the anointing. But because that individual didn't want to follow or relate to Jesus, that didn't benefit their life. So followers have to be willing to be led for the benefit to come to their life. Now let me give you 1 Timothy 6.1. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Tell the brothers and sisters, tell them, let as many bondservants as are under the yoke, count their own masters worthy of all honor, in you can come, so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. Now that's a modern... Modern day would be like this. Let the employee who's under the yoke count their own bosses worthy of all honor so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. Meaning God cares about how followers of Jesus relate to their employers and their bosses. Why? Because it affects our ability to influence culture. I like to put it this way, if you have a hard time honoring your boss, you will certainly have a hard time honoring God in spiritual leadership. Let me explain. If you murmur and get so upset and let all kinds of filth come out of your mouth and complain and do all that, listen, when your boss asks you to redo a project, how do you think you're going to Respond when God asks you metaphorically to die to your own life and desires. There ain't a chance. So the unsubmissive to human leadership would, if in a leadership role, be unsubmissive to the one Jesus they have to give an account to. That's what the Bible teaches. They say, wait a minute, Pastor, you don't understand. You don't understand the boss that I serve. Well, let me ask you this. If you're a follower of Jesus... Did He lead you to that job? Are you led by the Spirit? Or did you just take it to take it? But if you're led by the Spirit and God led you to that job, then He knew who your boss would be before you ever knew. So you're not there by chance. You're there to have a context for Him to do some things that He needs to do in your life. Because without challenge and without friction, without iron sharpens the iron, the rough patches of our life don't get smoothed out under the water of God's Spirit and the work of God's Spirit. You say, but where's it cross the line, Pastor Chad? Here's where. It's very simple. If they ask you to do something illegal, immoral, heretical, unethical, or it goes against the command and will of God. It's like the early disciples say, it's better for us to obey God than men. The cultural authority and the governmental authority, the religious leaders, who are also Pharisees, Sadducees, working in conjunction with Rome, They told Peter and John, said, don't preach in that name again. said, sorry, it's better for us to obey God than obey you. We're going to preach the name of Jesus, because there's no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, and He alone is the King of the kingdom. He alone can fix the issues of this society. So the question, challenging question is this, to resist your balls, that's where God has you? Is that resisting Christ? To harbor a bad attitude? Is that actually harboring? Because who has all authority now? Jesus, His claims is now I have all authority. I'm actually the owner of this business, whether the people who on paper understand it or not. Well, that's challenging. That's what Jesus challenges us with. I would never follow any spiritual leaders that hadn't been through those challenges. Going to know mine, I can, I can. We can sit down and I can hash it out and tell you. I can appeal. Here's what when I was in this, and here's how the Lord did this to me, and here I had to face this because that's how God prepares godly leaders. You don't get David without context for David to see that he'll make the same mistakes as his leader if God doesn't do a work in his heart. Because when you're a follower, listen, when you're a follower, there's things that you don't even have to count or consider because you're not a leader that has to go before in that area. So if you don't learn these lessons, when you get there, you won't be equipped for the role because there's things now you don't even have to think about that when you're a leader, you're going to have to think about and also all the other things you're already thinking about. So following, and that's why... When it comes to following, he says, remember and consider. He talks about your personal leadership. Or the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 says, continue in love, be hospitable. Don't refuse him, Jesus, who speaks from heaven. Have a heart that's open, ears to hear. Find grace that you may serve God acceptably. You can't serve God acceptably by yourself. God... That's the gospel. He never asked and expected that. We only serve God through relating trust trust in a trusting way to Jesus so that the grace of God can empower us. Get covetousness. Don't live above your means. Don't be a slave to debt. Learn that the Lord is your helper. But then here's the key. Will you trust His design? You say, what design, Pastor Chad? Here it is, Ephesians 4 Therefore, he says, when he, Jesus, ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. You know, God gave gifts to you. That gets exciting. So i read the rest of the passage. And you say, oh, that's the gift? I didn't want that. That doesn't sound like Christmas, or a good one at least. He gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended, what does it mean that he also first ascended to the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might feel all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Listen to me. If you find any believer that has not been equipped for their role and their work of the ministry of Jesus Christ in expanding the kingdom gone on the earth, I'll show you a believer that doesn't have relational transaction with apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, with godly leadership in their life. Those are the gifts given to us to equip and prepare us for what we were ultimately created in Christ for. Listen to me. And you can't get to your kingdom assignment and purpose without these gifts that God gave to you to get there. So when you find a brother and sister that's not there, or not being currently equipped, you find someone that's not learned to be able to relate to God's design of how to get you there, which is through godly leadership. So, what does this look like for you and I in our personal leadership? Here's what it looks like, 1 Thessalonians 5:13. He says, if you aspire basically to godly leadership, guess where it starts? It starts with personal leadership. Personal leadership. If you want to lead others in God's kingdom and in a godly way, you have to first learn to trust Jesus in leading your own life. He says this, 1 Thessalonians 5, 13, And to esteem them, the leaders, godly leaders, very highly in love for their work's sake. They have to consider and count things that you don't, not even on your radar. And watch this, and to be at peace among yourselves. Guess what esteem is there? Same Greek word we've been looking at all day. Biblical leadership. If you aspire to biblical godly leadership, which is a noble thing, Paul said, 1 Timothy 3, then it first starts with personal leadership. Start going before other brothers and sisters by honoring and esteeming the already godly leaders. If you aspire to be a godly leader and you can't esteem already the leaders, it's not going to work. So I just need to blow off steam. No, no, no. What you need to blow off and give off is some esteem for the leaders that have to think about and count costs that you're not even aware of. You're aware of the one thing that frustrates you, but you're not aware of the whole 30 things that they have to think of to make it all work. And he said, because of that, if you desire God, start leading yourself. And and leading others by going before and esteeming spiritual leaders. Hold them in love. And then here's the other one, be at peace among yourselves. Meaning, if you learn to lead yourself, your personal leadership will begin to spill over and give you relational leadership with brothers and sisters where you learn to live in peace in the community. How do you navigate disagreements? How do you navigate differing opinions? you got to learn personal leadership that spills over to relational leadership amongst the community of believers. And it's the community of believers that provides this accountability. Because they know when we're not living, we all know when we're not living at peace amongst ourselves. It's areas to grow. Now, if you're not familiar, when we planted the church in the Philippines, God gave me, one message to lay the foundation of that local church. He did the same thing here for Dwelling Place whoop stop and Dwelling Place Movement. But the messages were different. But the message here, if you're not aware, is seed, time, and harvest. When you look into this appeal and the conclusion of the writer of Hebrews and Hebrews, here's that's what you see. You see seed, time, and harvest. Let me show you. He said, spoken the word of God to you. There's seed. He says, whose faith follow?" That takes time. And then he said, harvest, considering the outcome of their faith. Seed, time, and harvest. And then in Hebrews 13 8, he says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why does he say that? Because he's think uh, writers think about seed, time, and harvest. And it reminds you, if you go back in Genesis, do you know after the flood, when Noah gets off that ark, do you know the first thing God says to him? He says, as long as this earth remains, there's seed, time, and harvest. And the writer of Hebrews saying, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. As long as this age and earth remains, the way the kingdom comes, the way transformation begins to happen, is seed, time, and then harvest. It starts by some followers getting around the gifts that God's given them, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and let their hearts and minds be seated with God's Word. And then they follow that godly leadership until they see the harvest of what God has planted in their heart, until they see the outcome and the harvest of the ministry and the dreams and the desires that God the Father has planted within you, that Christ has created you for. There's no other way. As long as the earth remains, it's seed, time, and harvest. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And just like Jesus started with spiritual authority, man, you can come, to absolutely change the cultural authority and the governmental authority that existed at this time, it's still the same method. It's still the same method. It's not try to change government first. It's not try to change my family and cultural authority first. It's first, Lord, bring your kingdom in me. Listen to me. There's no plan B. You and I are the seeds of God's kingdom being sown into places of cultural authority and governmental authority, and we are God's seed And if we'll keep following Jesus in that context and we keep receiving the seed and letting Christ the seed grow in us, then we will then be able to bring out of us the spiritual authority of Christ in us to bear upon the places that cultural authority and governmental authority has perverted itself away from God's original intent. You and I, we have seed, sower, authority. Say, what do you mean? Listen. The way the authority of God increases in your life, meaning the expression of it, is three things. Seed, seed of character, and seed of charisma. Seed means you learn to be discipled and rightly divide and interpret and imply the seed of God's Word. Listen. Listen. If you do that even if you have bad character when you speak God's word there's still a spiritual authority released. Now it's a smaller measure but there's still authority when you're someone's faithful to communicate God's word there's authority in the seed of the word of God. But then secondly the way you increase in spiritual authority is you let the seed of Christ be formed in your character. That you become faithful to following Jesus. You have a Christ-formed character. You learn to make godly leadership decisions in wisdom. Paul did it often. Paul didn't take votes when it came to certain things of his ministry. He said, I thought it necessary to sin so-and-so there. Meaning, leadership requires you have to have some wisdom. There's things that's not found in Scripture. And you got to make some hard choices. And over time, when you have character, those decisions, leadership decisions, we should be able to see the outcome of those decisions. Wisdom. But then seed of charisma. You know, Paul said, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He wasn't that by his own accord. So when you get rightly able to communicate and apply the seed of God's word, spiritual authority is working in your life. When you get the seed of Christ and His character forming you, more spiritual authority is working through your life. When then you begin to operate in the seed of charisma, your spiritual gifts and the anointing that God's put upon your life, more spiritual authority increases. More. And that's why starting to serve somewhere becomes so important. Because it's in serving that it gives the opportunity for the seed of charisma, the spiritual gifts on your life to start manifesting. Because listen, the seed of charisma has to be confirmed. Before Paul was sent out as a missionary in Acts 13, it was confirmed by other godly leaders and, and people around him. But let me ask you, how are you receiving the seed of God's Word? When are you receiving the seed of God's Word? What are you doing with the seed of God's Word you receive? Listen, I find no joy. Long-term joy in just you being here today and hearing the Word. What I find joy is you letting the seed of God's Word that's being planted in you, you keep following Jesus until the fruition of that promise and Word is in your life. It's seeing you in the outcome and the harvest of why God has created you and the good works in Christ. That's the joy. Not just being hearers, doers of the Word. Doers of the Word. Outcome, Seed of character and seed of charisma. I want to conclude with this quote by Matthew Kelly. He says, The culture they, the first Christians, had to overcome and transform was even more brutal than today's. By transforming it, the first Christians created a blueprint for cultural transformation that every generation of Christians should closely consult. You understand they did it. They did it without ever marching. Listen, they did it. A government that executed you and I. If we lived in, we would be dead. A government that was anti-Christ, the Roman Empire, was toppled, fell to its knees by a group of men and women that followed Jesus' spiritual authority. whose hearts were so transformed that then it led to cultural, family, and even governmental transformation because the kingdom and the seed of the King first starts on the inside of men and women. There is no plan B. It's mature disciples being sent back into the world, bearing with spiritual authority of God's seed and word and God's seed of character of Christ and the seed of charisma and gifting upon the life bearing upon governmental authority and cultural authority that true change happens. Here's what he says. The first Christians created a blueprint for cultural transformation that every generation of Christians should closely consult. But the essence of that blueprint is the idea that holiness is possible, meaning Christ in us is our hope for holiness in us and through us. And that's what the world needs to encounter. So godly leadership protects through sowing Christ through the Word of God, sowing Christ through the character of Christ, sowing Christ through the manifestation of their spiritual gifts and functions. Godly leadership counts things differently than the world. Godly leaders think differently. That's why their outcomes in life are different. And then godly followers don't just hear the word, but they put the seed of the word they receive into action. They learn to trust Christ more and more in the areas of their life. They learn to lead their life. They learn to live at peace among the community of believers. They learn contentment, and they learn to esteem well and love those leaders who've went before them and following Jesus. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.